Welcome to another episode of Winging It. Yes, this is the in-between show, the show outside of the regular show, the show that happens when the other show isn't happening, you know, that kind of thing. Well, we do this show because we don't want you to have to have a week without us. Why should you? Why would you? Right? I mean, come on. There's enough of a mental health crisis in this country as it is. We don't need that. We do not need to contribute. No. So we went ahead and cured you of that particular ailment or set of ailments. And here we are again on an off week entertaining you yet again with uh, some interesting, strange and completely impromptu, at least to David, topics. And this time, are you ready? Totally blindsided every time. Bushwhacked. Yes, go ahead. Are you sitting down? Oh, of course. Yeah, I do. I, I see. You are sitting down. In both down. studios, you got to sit down. You do. <laughs> you kind of got to <laughs> sit down. All right. So this is Songs with Misunderstood Meanings. Oh. And this is brought to you by Mental Floss, which is one of my favorite publications to read. Very fun. Very interesting. And I didn't know they had uh, as many music topics as they do but this is a fascinating one so and, and especially for me because i never understand what songs are about anyway so yes well this is going to be fun because i'm going to ask you what you think the song is about and <laughs> then, I'm g- <laughs> then i'm gonna share with you some of the information that uh they shared with us them being shit they made up or the well, what the artist actually said both okay yeah. <laughs> i believe it's really because i mean we already talked said. about uh yes is siberian katru i thought it was about an actual bird called a uh, katru that right, lived in siberia that. totally wrong Not totally right. wrong yeah but it's hard to tell with John Anderson's strange lyrics, so I get it. Okay, so this is interesting. We are revisiting this one. Imagine John Lennon. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, misunderstood meaning. Am I supposed to guess what the misunderstood yeah, meaning you're is? You're supposed to just guess. Well, you're supposed to tell us what you think it means. Oh. Well, it's, it's, it's idealistic, hippy dippy musings. Um, probably just, uh, you know. Hopefully he didn't think it was like legitimately possible that it could actually happen. It was just something like, like I said, idealistic musings, dream, pie in the sky, wouldn't it be nice? Almost childlike in its own way, and I find that kind of beautiful uh, when I think about it that way. But, uh, of course, I'm sure it's misunderstood as meaning just a flat-out call for socialism, but, I mean, I'm not, I'm not oh, going to go that God. route. I'm not going to go that oh, route. Oh, my um, God. But, uh, so, what uh, What do people say? What do well, all the people first, say? I will share with you what I thought. I mean, I definitely thought, I didn't see it or hear it, rather, as a call to action as much as it was, and I mentioned this on an episode of Winging It, as much as it was a change your way of thinking think differently think about things you know in a different way put it in a different perspective so perhaps it will give you a new perspective a more contented one yes Yes. i think so you know one where you weren't focused on what you know he deems to be the wrong things or maybe things that kind of cloud your judgment or cloud your mind or get in the way of things that are maybe more beautiful or harmonious or whatever so that's what i thought well let's find out So when Rolling Stone named the former Beatles' ubiquitous hit the third greatest song of all time, Lennon's hallmark lyrics were described as 22 lines of graceful, plain-spoken faith in the power of a world united in purpose to repair and change itself. But the feel-good sentiments behind the song, Jimmy Carter once said, was used almost equally with national anthems, have some serious communist (laughs) underpinnings, as you might have imagined. Lennon called the song virtually the communist manifesto and once the song became a hit, went on record saying, because it's sugarcoated, it's accepted. Now I understand what you have to do. Put your message across with a little honey. 
<laughs> so that's what Lennon said, not that's Jimmy what Carter. Lennon that's what said. Lennon said. Right. Well, gee, I was giving him a little more credit than that. Well, I mean, it is impossible to not have possessions or anything like that. I mean, you can eschew religion all you want if you think that's going to make you a better person, which I'm sure he probably did. But there's a lot of it that's good. Uh, you know, actually, none of it's really enactable, I don't think. I mean, you know, no countries. Well, I mean, we got to have countries. we got to have possessions. we got to have all this. However, as a just a general, if you really put it out of focus and uh, kind of squint at a distance, you can see it as a call to being less materialistic, at yes. least being contented with what you have, living at peace with your neighbors. So there's some good in there. I do have an issue with the lyric, but like I said, if it comes on, I'm not turning it off because it is a beautiful song. Uh, interesting to see what Mr. Carter said <laughs> because uh, he used the C word, whereas I was going with the S word to yes. soften the blow a little bit. But um, of course, I imagine people who are seriously into that mindset really uh, embrace the song because of its message. I find it hard to believe that Lennon would have taken that seriously. I would have walked up to his brownstone and knocked on the door and said, can I have your uh, Epiphone Casino? Because, I mean, after all, there's no possessions and everything. (laughs) See how that would have gone over. But beautiful song. I don't think much about lyrics, honestly, anyway. Very seldom. Even the ones that move me and make me cry, I don't necessarily expect to understand the lyric because half the time I'm wrong. The artist has some some strange thing in mind. But uh, it's interesting to hear what Lennon had to say about it. I did not ever uh, read that. Yeah, I hadn't read it either, but I still, even though I know now, obviously, what he was thinking when he wrote it, whenever I hear it, I just think, okay, Christina, change the way you see things. Change your mindset. You know, think of things in a more holistic fashion. You know, think of things in a different way. And for that reason, I really appreciate the song and the fact that it puts me in a different headspace for a little while. So it doesn't change how much I love that song now that I know the intention. It just reminds me again that I need to take a couple steps back. Yeah, it doesn't make me want to give up all my shit either. So yeah. mm, Fair enough. <laughs> like, well, as, uh, as Guns N' Roses is saying, you can get anything you want, but you better not take it from me. You know? <laughs> wow. Are we really <laughs> evoking Guns N' Roses right now? I thought you didn't listen to lyrics. <laughs> what the fuck just happened? <laughs> Occasionally, I'll get a little, uh, I'll cut a little sound bite. Uh, all right. So the next song, Just Like Heaven by The Cure. Yeah, I'm not sure, but it's pleasantly obfuscated, or whatever the word is I'm looking for. It's uh, murky. It's uh, it's like all lyrics to me. I mean, it sounds like, okay, there's this girl who... who wants him to do the trick that makes her scream and makes her laugh and he's thinking about all these ways he has to please her but apparently she's like you don't get i love you and he wakes up alone and she's drowned in the sea or is the sea of him or is she really fall in the water and drown and i don't know but it's like it doesn't work out he ultimately loses her because he's focused on the pleasure part of it and she's in the love thing i don't know what the hell the song's about it's just a pleasant song but Yeah, I think that I've always thought that it was just some cute little lost in love song, you know, some sweet little lost in love song that didn't have the best ending and I couldn't figure out why and didn't know why. Here's what they said. So Entertainment Weekly's recognized The Cure's synth-slathered love song as the 25th greatest love song of all time. Totally slathered, yeah. Yes, (laughs) but also questioned just what is this scream, laugh, hug-inducing trick. Turns out the lyric that threw most fans of The Cure for a loop just refers to a sudden shortness of breath. The only thing that might be more uh, strange in the lyrics to what Smith told Blender is the best pop song The Cure has ever done is Smith's explanation for the love song's cryptically esoteric poetry. 
In the same 2003 interview with Blender, Smith said, Just like heaven, inspired by a trip with his girlfriend to Beachy Head in southern England, was about hyperventilating, kissing, and falling to the floor. Smith's dissection of the song's opening lines, Show me, show me, show me how you do that trick, is less obvious. According to the singer, the line is equal parts a reference to his affinity for performing magic tricks in his youth and about a seduction trick from much later in his life. Well, uh, when he says, dreamed of all the different ways I had to make her glow, it sounds like it mm-hmm. sounds like a sex thing. It, it sounds like does. I'm going to really, really please you big time. Yes. And then she says, why are you so far away? It's like uh, it's just like he's not going all the way there in the love aspect that, right. that she is. Why won't you ever know that I'm in love with you? And then next thing we know, he's alone. And it's right. just like, that's what makes it, ultimately, it came apart because... She was in it for love, and he wasn't just going to the love level that she wanted or whatever. So it sounds kind of sad, but of course, for The Cure, it's a very uh, upbeat, upbeat. Uh, very upbeat uh, music. <laughs> and as you know, I've recently come to really appreciate The Cure, yes. thanks to your uh, intervention. And The Smiths. And The Smiths, yeah. These bands that I just kind of missed in my tar pit. But yeah, I like the song. It's a really good song. And thankfully, it's not a downer, although it does sound like he loses the girl. But then he says, you drowned inside of me, and I think it is kind of cryptic. And I It think is cryptic. That, that's cool. You know? And I think sometimes, and I apologize, but I'm always going to refer to it as like a John Anderson-ism, where they just are like, I don't know, these lyrics, they started out meaning one thing, and now they mean nothing, or they mean everything. So I feel kind of like that with John Anderson lyrics, is they may go in a certain direction, then they take a turn, and you're like, what the hell? Yeah, and I'm assuming Roundabout is not on this list. Or <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> there are a few Yes songs that do appear to make a semblance of sense. I a just, semblance, a yes. A semblance, yeah. Um, all right, so the next one is definitely one we both know, Like a Virgin. Oh, there you go. Okay. So, so what does that song mean to you? What do you think it's talking about? Well, that one seems really straightforward. And, you know, Madonna isn't known for... You know, very, uh, you know, these cryptic esoteric lyrics and no. everything. I mean, and, and that's not a criticism at all, because I, I think Madonna's terrific. Uh, it's just so is that a real love has made this you know, woman who's, you know, kind of been around and been promiscuous and been in a lot of meaningless relationships uh, feel something for the first time, to feel like this is the first time it's real. And it's beautiful in that way. I suppose it's intended to have the word virgin crammed in the uh, listener's face again and again and again and have to be the title of the song and the album, which is a great album, by the way. No, sorry, Like a Prayer. Well, I had, they're both great albums. They're yeah. both great. They're both great. Uh, I had them all, actually, at one point. So it seems pretty straightforward. I don't know if there's a meaning apart from what it is very plainly saying. It's lost on me because it seems uh, pretty, pretty plain. But what do the pundits say about this? Well, I will share what I thought, and then we'll share what the pundits say. I definitely thought it was about about her feeling renewed yeah maybe made whole again or something by love like maybe she'd been beaten down by yeah like all that other stuff didn't happen right and now i'm starting anew with you and it's like the first time for everything it's really sweet you know so yes so the actual songwriter steinberg penned like a virgin to tackle his own relationship woes he explained in depth to the la times i was saying that i may not really be a virgin i've been battered romantically and emotionally like many people but i'm starting a new relationship and it feels so good it's healing all the wounds and making me feel like i've never done this before because it's so much deeper and more profound than anything i've ever felt yeah, which is what everybody thinks That's it means think. to begin with. So I think some people thought it was a sexual thing. I mean, when I was younger, I remember most of my friends, of course, much younger, 
and they thought it was all about sex. And I'm like, I don't think it has anything to do with sex. If you listen to the lyrics, that's not what it sounds like. It sounds like he's wiping the slate clean for her. Yeah, no, I never took it to, I mean, apart from virgin being a sexual term, I, I never I never took it to mean it was like a virgin. And it was like, all that stuff had never happened. Right. This is like, you know, the first real love. It's, it's No, I never took it that way. And so apparently, I kind of had this one right. What do you know? Yes, I know. I had this one right, too, <laughs> yeah. even from when Pro- I was probably younger. Probably for the last time. You know? Probably the last yeah. time, yeah. Absolutely. No, and I, I loved it. And there was something really taboo, again, about her using the word virgin again and again and again, even though it was supposed to mean something really beautiful people took it really wrong and i do think there's this great meme and i don't know why i feel the need to tell you this but there's this meme where it's a uh, you know it's actually two penguins and one penguin says to the other penguin someday somebody's gonna hug you so tight that all your pieces will be put back together yeah it's like that it's like you know? that yeah. you know and the right hug from the right person the right person you know telling you they love you the right person whatever it does heal a lot of those wounds it doesn't make them disappear but it makes it feel like oh my god this is like the first time i felt this way it just changes everything so i I think it's a beautiful song even though it's a poppy song and it made a wonderful uh parody for weird al yankovic uh, (laughs) like a surgeon which was awesome one of yes one of my favorite parts is uh it's a fact I'm a quack, the disgrace of the AMA, because my patients die. Yeah, my patients die before they can pay. <laughs> it's just genius. Yeah. Oh, my God. So we got a great real song, a great satire and a parody, and uh, awesome uh, work, Mr. Steinberg. Uh, yes, absolutely. So, all right. Harder to Breathe, Maroon 5. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, often the name Maroon 5 will... <laughs> be met by eye rolls and derision from me but i recognizing the talent of adam levine in a number of areas he's a great instrumentalist and can play a lot of stuff uh vocally i don't like his voice what he does with it most of the time this song really kicks ass i like it well because it's kind of dark and that's the thing about the lyric is it could just simply be, hey, no one's going to love you like I do, so if you leave, you're going to be miserable and you're going to miss me and all that stuff. But it has an ominous edge to it, too. Uh, you know, monster, losing inside a dream. I mean, you know, it's, it's a little bit, it could be a sinister or a sweet starlings, even. Um, you know, because uh, it has that. And I kind of like that. I mean, I don't like guys menacing women or anything like that, but I mean, there's... Music is a storytelling art, and sometimes you got to play the bad guy and everything. And I think there's a little bit of a hint of that here. So I like the... You know, the ambiguity of it. I came up with the right word at the right time. How about Beautiful. That? The ambiguity of it, I was going to say. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> uh, and, well, the music really rocks, too. And this is one of the times that Maroon 5 has worked for me, and mostly they don't. So it just seems like, uh, as I said, as far as the meaning, it seems to be possibly with a slight implied threat. Uh, but... Go ahead and leave. Uh, you know you're you're going to be sorry. So uh, whatever that might mean, what do you and the pundits say? Well, I definitely thought that it was kind of like a jilted lover thing, and a, you can go ahead and leave. You know, but no one's ever going to be as good as I was to you. And I got all that stuff, but I do definitely feel the uh, thinly veiled threat that you were saying. So interesting. At least you didn't say, see if I care. That's not <laughs> True that. He pretty much said it in every other possible way. Yeah, yeah. But So at first blush, the single off Maroon 5's debut album, Songs About Jane, seems to be, well, just another song about Jane, the name of a girlfriend with whom the lead singer Adam Levine shared a rocky relationship. But 
The album's lead-off single sounds like a racy nod to the jilted lover Levine claimed to be his muse. Harder to Breathe stemmed from a different kind of suffocating relationship. The song serves as a bitter indictment of music industry pressures. Said Levine in a 2002 interview with MTV, that song comes sheerly from wanting to throw something. It was the 11th hour and the label wanted more songs. It was the last crack. I was just pissed. I wanted to make a record and the label was applying a lot of pressure, but I'm glad they did. Wow. So boy, was I ever fucking off. Yeah, me too. A lot of a lot of artists have written songs about conflicts right? with their their managers, their labels, or whoever it might have been, or a member of the group Remember or whatever. Prince with his slave on his cheek because of Warner Brothers. Oh, was that it? Mm-hmm. Oh, John Fogerty wrote one. Uh, everybody's Everybody. Black Sabbath wrote one. Even Sarah Bareilles, the sweetest, kindest woman on all the earth, wrote a song about, I'm not going to write you a love song even though you want one. I'm not going to do it. Wow. Yeah, nice. so everybody. And that gave them the hit they wanted, no That's doubt. Right. They got the hit they, <laughs> they got wanted. their way after all, see? Well, yeah. And they were happy that they pushed them so hard because they got harder to breathe out of it, wow. which is a great song. But, you know, you think it's about one thing and it's about something else. Again, very misunderstood lyrics. Yeah, I think they need a lot of pressure. Having uh, heard some of the other songs on the album, I hey, think... Hey, hey, hey. Uh, <laughs> Maybe you're right. I do like the rockiness of that song, and I yes, like the rawness, yes. and I like kind of the feel of it. Even, like, when you get to the... Uh, Oh, I love the bridge of it. It's just so dark and ominous. Yeah, yeah. I was stunned by that one. Uh, and then I heard some of the other ones. I was like, okay, well, that's kind of what I expected. They're very R&B, like soul kind of stuff. And that's that's what he likes to do with his voice. And I love his voice and I love what he does with it. But there's nothing that's quite like Harder to Breathe. Right. I would totally agree with that. That is probably the keeper out of the Maroon 5 canon right there. Well, I'm going to... Throw some more your way. Yeah, well, I, I have a reason to believe, in fact, that we will be doing that on an upcoming Birds. Indeed. Okay, are you ready for the next one? Yeah. Summer of 69, Brian Adams. Oh, I got my first real six string. I heard this just a couple nights ago. On the, the five and dime. Brian Adams. Wait until my fingers been led. Was a summer of 69. Oh, oh we, should have, we should have had the egg for that <laughs> one, you know. Standing hey, it's right on there. Your, standing <laughs> on your mama's porch. <laughs> oh, such a great song. It is a great song. And I mean, a lot of people, oh, it's, so, it's so commercial. Yeah, please, I love Brian please. Adams. I'm it's sorry. Great. I always have. I don't always care how will. commercial or whatever. It's, it's great stuff. And, well, it seems pretty plain uh, just remembering... That And a lot of artists have written songs about this, too. What it was like when it was simple in the beginning. And John Entwistle wrote one for The Who about, you know, take 200, whatever it was. Uh, you know, this used to be fun. You know, back when we were making music because we loved it in the early innocent days. And playing in bands for the first time when we sucked. It was just great to do. Dave Grohl has talked about that. He says, that's how you do it. You get together, you play, you suck. You play some more, you suck some more. And then eventually you find yourself. That's right. And uh, Except, of course, I never did. But um, the... Oh. <laughs> That is so not correct. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it doesn't seem there's any meaning here except for just a, you know, a romantic reminiscence, uh, not romantic in that sense, but just a fond reminiscence of the early days of you know, when you were this musical ingenue and you're just, wow, I want to play and this is exciting and wow. And, you know, the band, okay, we couldn't keep the band together and that stuff happens, of course. Oh, yeah. But um, I'd be surprised if there's anything below the surface on this song, but let's find out. That's exactly, I'm not even going to repeat it. That's exactly what i thought the song was about yeah that's exactly it 
So, born in the winter of 1959, Brian Adams would have only been 10 during the summer of one of his best-known hits, released in 1985. But summer of 69 isn't so much Adams waxing nostalgic over the dog days of 1969 as much as it is a reference to the sexual position of the same name. In 2008, Adams told CBS News that a lot of people think it's about a year, but actually it's more about making love in the summertime. It's using 69 as a sexual reference. Yeah, because he would have hopefully, and he wasn't doing that in 1969 either, for sure. No. <laughs> I hope not. He was only 10, you know. But he did say parts of the song are still steeped in hints of truth, though. Adams has gone on record saying that he picked up his second ever electric guitar at a pawn shop and that his fingers bled while he was totally submersed in practicing. Got my second real six string. That's doesn't right. ha- doesn't have the same ring, just like Summer of 75 doesn't have the same no, ring. You 69. Know, 69. And so he was probably playing very young. I never would have guessed that. I wouldn't have either. I never, I never uh, Wikipedia'd Brian Adams to find out either. how old he was in 69. Me I just neither. figured, okay, well, he's older than I am. Right, you know? that's what I thought yeah. so too. Well, nice, nice work. Interesting, uh, yeah. Very, yeah, interesting. very and it's well-veiled. I mean, yeah, really, because I thought it was just about band and... You know, kind of like you said, just ah, oh, when we were young, and yeah, we were, yeah, that's really what I thought it was about. So, when I read this, I thought, oh, wow. wow. And I mean, I thought maybe he took a little artistic license with the year because it has a ring to it, it not sure because does. that particular number has a meaning. You I know? remember thinking when I heard Summer of '69, it made me giggle the first time I heard. It, I was like, mm. and was, then that was you were it. so young, you know, right? Well, <laughs> that, like, that's why because everyone was like, '69, know what that means, oh. you know, right? And I was like, this is what he's talking about. You but know. it's it's very singable. Like I said, here we oh. are. We, we, we started singing the song immediately. You can't you know? help it. You can't help it. Uh. I mean, if it were like a summer of 74, no, it doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just 69 really has a great ring to it. And of course, you know, well, we talked about 68 on the last birds. It was a, a year that was a lot going on uh, culturally, musically. For sure. And uh, I don't know how old Brian Adams is, so he totally fooled me on that one. Me too. Yeah. I really thought it was exactly what you said. Yeah. Like, you said it perfectly. All right, well, that one snowed us. What about The One I Love, R.E.M.? Hmm. This one goes out to the one I love. This one goes to the one I left behind. Yeah. A simple, what is it? A simple... Prop. Prop. To, to occupy, occupy my, my time. time. Hey, that's uh, that's uh, kind of <laughs> that harsh. That sound great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, either, that, either that or it's the bitter thing. It's just like, okay, yeah, you're the one I love, but you were just a prop. You were just a placeholder. You were just, right. uh, you know, just a distraction, you know. Uh, don't know what he's on about with that one. Uh, <laughs> well, I will say that I thought until... I don't know. I want to say I was like 20. I thought that this was a love song. And still, when I sing it and the feel of it makes me feel like it's a love song. But I think from just that line we talked about, we know better now. But let's hear what they said. I mean, I figure a simple prop might be the clothespin he puts on his nose to get that vocal sound. But anyway, go ahead, please. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> she see her face here. She's like, "Can I go on with this? Am I enough of a pro to continue with the show after that <laughs> yeah. slight against Michael Stipe?" You know, Michael Stipe is not the greatest singer. He's not. No, I, but I, I like Ariam. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I do. I like Ariam. Ariam is one of my favorite yeah. bands, and I'm still heartbroken that they're not going to make any more music. But that's okay. Just they were actually stand in the place where you live. I love uh, R.E.M. Yeah, okay, I don't love that song. You don't love that song? I don't. Of course you don't. And you don't. <laughs> you probably don't like. Uh, it's the end of the world as we know it. I right? love that song. Oh, okay, you do love that song. Yeah. It's, it's... Oh, brilliant! Genius. So good. When the Georgia natives unleashed their first top ten single in concert, Peter Buck, the guitar slinger, felt baffled by audiences' romantic reactions 
Buck said, I'd look into the audience and there would be couples kissing, yet the verses savagely anti-love. People told me that was their song. That was your song? Singer Michael Stipe echoed Buck's emotions in a 1992 interview with Q Magazine, admitting that he almost didn't even record the song, calling it too brutal and really violent and awful. After five years of the one I love going out to loved ones as dedications over the radio waves, Stipe took a complacent stance on his song's misconstrued fate, saying it's probably better that they think it's a love song at this point. <laughs> it's best you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and then he says... It would have screwed uh, up, retroactively screwed up a lot of weddings. You know, that's right. <laughs> Retroactively, mm. And I read on another site called Diffuser, <laughs> this one goes out to the one I love. Then it's revealed that the subject is not a current lover, but a former one. This one goes out to the one I left behind. And then there's a turn, a simple prop to occupy my time. The first line is repeated to the listener, not with the understanding that this is a loving gesture, but something bitter, ironic, or cynical. Yeah, and that brings another one to mind that I won't mention because I have a feeling it's probably coming up anyway. Uh, so I'll leave that be because I have a, here it comes, I'm sure. Go ahead. <laughs> so how about this one? American Girl, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Oh, she was an American girl. I What? That was very passionate. I loved oh. it. <laughs> it was beautiful. <laughs> you gotta be to be Tom it Petty. It was great. Oh, I love Tom Petty. Um, hmm. I'm trying to think of what the question is here. Uh, and if she had died trying, she had one little promise she was going to keep. Um, I am never really thought about the lyric much, and Tom Petty's a great lyric writer. I just never really considered this one much. What is the lowdown behind this? Well, I guess there's a legend that Tom Petty's standard was inspired by University of Florida's girl who committed suicide by jumping from the Beatty Tower's balcony. I guess it's not true. It's exactly what I thought it was. It is really just a beautiful love song. Gee. Yeah. It's weird because you certainly don't get that from the lyric. Well, because there's discussion about a balcony in it. So they ah. made that. They made a jump, obviously. <laughs> they, <laughs> they took a leap. Oh, <laughs> they took a leap, did they? <laughs> oh, fuck me. I wasn't even trying to do that. I can wow. say that because it's not what happened. It you is, know? Well, it's a real story. Oh, well, that's true. But, I'm not joking about that. No, no. I'm joking about the one that didn't happen. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just right. Well, it was kind of cold that night. She stood alone on her balcony. Uh, yeah, she could hear the cars roll by out on 441, like waves crashing on the beach. And for one desperate moment there, he crept back, back in, her, in memory. her memory. God, it's so painful. Sorry. Yeah. So I think they thought oh. that was the connection. And they thought, oh, he must be talking about that because I guess it was what was going on at the time. And he's like, nope, sorry, kids. That's not what it's about. It's just a love song. Well, thank heavens for that. Yeah. Yes. So I did think it was a love song, although a kind of strange love song. More of an admiration uh, song. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah. But I, I mean, uh, kind of borderline stocky to me, but that's just me. I don't know. It could be wrong. But anyway, but that was, uh, I guess, very much wildly misunderstood. Urban legend stuff. There. Yes, exactly. So, In the Air Tonight, Phil Collins. Oh, such a great song. Oh, oh it, is, it is such a such a powerful song. And oh. Phil Collins, I mean, yes, he can sing pop. Yes. He can sing the Disney soundtracks. He can sing all that stuff. But he's a raw and, at times, downright frightening rock singer. I For mean, you sure. listen to Mama. Holy shit. Oh, that you know song. I mean, I mean, it gives you goosebumps. It My does. Ah! Is that Every burning, time. Mama? I was like, oh, it is. 
is, and this is another one. I love that you brought up Mama. It's yeah. so good. Oh, that album is insane. Insanely I have that album on good. vinyl. It's so good. I mean, the songs on there, Genesis, the pep, give me, kiss my ass. The uh, the songs on there, Home by the Sea. Oh, my goodness. So we I, listen to it all the time. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible um, record. Album. Um I love Collins era Genesis. We've talked about that on another show. Yeah. Sadly. <laughs> yeah. Collins Genesis, Gabriel Solo, and that's pretty much it. But anyway, um, I've heard the story Ain't about wrong. this song that he um, <laughs> actually, that there was someone who uh, kind of stood by passively and allowed someone that Phil Collins knew or cared about to drown. And he's saying, I know you, I know you did it, I know who you are, and if it was happening to you, I wouldn't do anything. It sounds bitter and vindictive, but I don't know if there's any uh, true life basis to it, but that's what I've heard. Well, interesting you should say that. That is the urban legend, Mm -hmm. that that's what this song is about. Now, I always thought it was about a relationship gone wrong, and apparently I was right, though I didn't really know the depth, so... Instead of the urban legend, the song is simply a tense, introspective look at Collins' divorce from his first wife. The divorce contributed to his 1979 hiatus from Genesis until the band regrouped in October of that year to record the album Duke. Phil said in 2016, I wrote the lyrics spontaneously. I'm not quite sure what the song is about, but there's a lot of anger, a lot of despair, and a lot of frustration. Yeah, there is. And it is, it's chilling. And that's, I'm sure that's what he was going for. And boy, when those drums come in, damn. Iconic. Oh, man, that is so powerful. Who doesn't do the air drumming when that happens? Oh, man, you've got to. Everybody, you know. And, you know, I mean, Phil Collins singer, I mean, everybody ought to know what a sensational drummer Phil Collins is. I'm sad he can't play anymore. Yeah, that is that is heart. a darn shame. Genesis is coming back to perform, but he's not going to be playing the drums. But on stage, it's probably better that he doesn't anyway. But, I mean, he will do some of the time anyway. But as lead vocalist, it'd be better if he could just be free. But that is a pity. Of course, when Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin recorded his first solo album, who did he pick as his drummer? Phil freaking Collins. That's that gives right. you something, an example right there. Yeah, it's good to just let those songs go like that. Just put it out there. And obviously, it worked. You hear it everywhere you go. To this day, it's been decades. So the song is is the stuff of legends. And I never turn it off. No, never. There's no way. When you hear that creepy beginning, it's just like, oh, and everybody sings along. No matter everybody of every age, no matter who they are, they get hooked by the song the instant they hear it. It is is an absolute smash. And um, yeah, I mean, it's chilling and it's bitter. And of course, the urban legend did spread up that somebody stood by and watched somebody drown and all this garbage and everything. It's just, you know, one of those toxic things he just got out. I mean, I've had trouble with my wives. I certainly wouldn't stand by and watch any of them drown. And no doubt Phil Collins wouldn't either. He would not. But, you know, you get those things out and, hey, you get a hit song out of it. I mean, it's, you know, cathartic or whatever the hell. So, yeah, great stuff. And, I mean, just a strange connection. The I don't care anymore is also about his divorce. Oh, yeah, there's another one, yeah. I don't care anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all about the, you know, I don't care what you say anymore. I'm done. Uh, So, I mean, I think that one's clearer than this one. This one, you're like, hmm. And then there was the urban myth attached to it just like all the other ones and that's why they're so misunderstood because the great thing about music is you can assign whatever meaning you want to it and also the great thing about music is sometimes they'll tell you what it was really about and it's kind of fun and it gives it a whole new life yeah, and when we uh, talk about stuff on the show, uh, we're not making up these grand fables. We're just, you know, misattributing something or whatever. We're not making up these grandiose fables uh, the way that one. I mean, clearly somebody had to sit down and make that up out of thin air because they couldn't possibly have extracted it from anything that happened, uh, anything the song was really about. 
You're and I will say mm. that it is definitely something that happens frequently with songs, especially if there's something happening in the news or there's something that happens, you know, when it's released or if people can just make even a loose tie, they will attribute something weird to it. So that's what's happened here. And that's why some of these songs are misunderstood. Though, again, they should be open to interpretation, but still. Yeah, yeah, absolutely they are. And, you know, in my case, I'm usually going to have, like, no clue. And uh, just as long as it sounds good, as long as it flows together nicely, as long as there's an artistry, as long as I can admire the craft behind the lyric, even if it's kind of uh, creepy, um, I'm okay with that, uh, as long as I don't believe that the person means it. Of course, then you have artists who are like some guy from Slipknot says, if I weren't in a band, I'd be at killing people. You know, it kind of makes you wonder if maybe he means what he says. You know? But um, may mean something, uh, yeah. Yeah, maybe. But, you know, I'm not a fan anyway. But lyrics, I do love to hear them. And, uh, you know, it doesn't trouble me at all if I don't get what they're about. But it's interesting to hear the backstories in cases like this. It's interesting that you say that because you say sometimes you'll say, well, I don't care about the lyrics. And other times the lyrics ruin the song for you. So you do care about the lyrics. But sometimes you just enjoy the music so much you may not seek them out. But sometimes the lyrics are the thing that turns you off to a song. So it's very interesting. They're like, yeah, I don't really care. You do care. Right. I don't care if they're not clear. Uh, yeah. Or if they make any sense, as in the case of oh, quite a few songs, actually. Not oh, just sure. yes. Not oh. just yes. There are songs that it's just like, what are they? Like Bowie. Bowie's another one. It's like, yeah, what the hell is that all about? Know. You know, Nice work, but I don't know what you're Sounds trying great, to say there, dude. No idea. But yeah, if I can get a lyric, if I understand the lyric and I don't like it, that will sometimes turn me off. Sometimes I'll roll my eyes and I'll jam along with the song, even if the lyric is moronic, like you shook me all night long, for example. But there are ones that are a complete turn off. You know. Yeah, it's interesting where you draw the line. It's interesting because it changes, depends on the genre sometimes, mm-hmm. depends on the subject matter sometimes. And sometimes you'll be okay with the same subject matter, but it's delivered in a different way. So it's interesting. I like to kind of learn about kind of what you like and what you don't like, but it's kind of hard because sometimes you'll say, you know, I'm turned off by this song because of the lyrics. And then I'm like, but that song's similar lyrics, but not the same. Yeah, it, it's it interesting. is. It, it depends on how it's put uh-huh. and... Uh, yeah, I, I, it is I kind of hard that. to explain. There's just something pushes a button and something else doesn't. Right. And I don't know if it's the same with every music fan, but uh, it is with me. It's I, I think it's different for me. I, the lyrics don't so much destroy it for me as <laughs> a bad guitar riff, a bad vocal. Mm. Um, oh, vocals are deadly. Oh, vocals gosh. Are deadly I'm me. sorry. I mean, I know that we all have pitchiness sometimes, but if they're pitchy at all... Even if you're if you're like an indie band or whatever, and there's a pitch issue, I'm like, mm. I'm gonna guess that's probably why you're not down with Cheryl Crow. I am not a fan of Cheryl yeah. Crow. Yeah, I. It her makes vo- you happy. I mean, she's really she <sighs> sings. I mean, I guess you have to applaud the bravery, but she sings outside of her range many times. But so does Adele. Adele is at the top of her range at all times. But there's something. The thing that people love about Cheryl Crow is there's kind of that like moment where you feel like she's going to lose it and it's going to just go completely sideways and it doesn't. And with Adele, it's the same thing. You're like, oh, my God, she's just it feels like like their voice is breaking and they can't hang on. But, yeah, there's a lot of people that sing outside their range. Cheryl Crow, I don't like the sound of her voice. I don't like her music. I don't like her lyrics. Have you ever heard her doing the Bond theme, Tomorrow Never Dies? No, I... She really reaches... I mean, it's a a decent enough song, but when she gets to the chorus, it's really... she shouldn't mm, be reaching see, that high. Yeah, see, that's yeah. a mm, that's a thing that will turn me off. And but the here's the thing. Here's the here's the rub with me too, though. So something like Counting Crows. Counting Crows. I love Adam Duritz. He's not a great singer, 
but there is something about the soul in those songs that speaks to me. But if you gave me another band, just kind of like what I was saying about about you with lyrics, you gave me another band and a singer sound like that, I'd be like I'm out. It's so weird, and it's a certain time in my life. It was a certain feel of the song. Exactly. There are uh, occasions. There's a song that um, well, we talked about on Birds recently <laughs> that um, where the singer actually kind of reminds me of Eddie Vedder, but I can take it. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's like if somebody else were singing other songs like Bob Dylan I probably wouldn't want to hear it You're but right. I can listen to Dylan all day you know right. uh, any one of his 15 different voices that he's had over over the years so there's just something that pushes a button there yes. and I think every music lover can relate to that it's just I just don't like this why not well it's just I don't like this like why do I love Soundgarden and Nirvana and uh, well I mean Chris Cornell can sing. There's been a case made by a lot of people that uh, Kurt Cobain really couldn't sing, but I can listen to him no problem, and I just can't handle Eddie Vedder or Lane Staley or any of those guys. I don't know what it is, but uh, something, something. You're very particular about male voices. Yeah. I'm much more open to female voices. In in fact, Mm -hmm. the majority, as we'll see on my uh, special, um, the majority of... (laughs) The acts that I've really, you know, uh, cottoned on to in the uh, indie music scene uh, had female voices, uh, even if they were the only member of the band that was female, just the voice as opposed to male voices. Because male voices, there aren't that many of them out there that appeal to me like there used to be. And then back in the day, you had you had Bowie and you had Jagger and you had Freddie Mercury and you had, uh, oh, you know, I mean, uh, all these guys. Elton and, John. Uh, Elton John and McCartney and Leonard, you know. But today, it's like there aren't that many male voices that interest me anymore. It's not just because I you know prefer females or anything well i mean i, I as company i do actually but uh, <laughs> and <laughs> as, i get that as I'm you sure. know i mean yeah <laughs> but uh yeah something about certain songs just turned me off these were all really pretty good ones that uh, were under discussion tonight i mean song wise and um, we have one more and you're oh, gonna, i think you're nice. gonna like this one you're gonna like this one and i apologize for my aside but i was just like oh it's so interesting how it's okay in this particular song or with this particular genre, this particular artist for both of us. Oh, I was going to say, because otherwise, at first it sounded with, like you're kind of eccentric and kind of a kook, you know? No, with like <laughs> lyrics or voices or, you know what I mean? It's so specific to the person. Yeah, it's just like, if you like this, why don't you like that? Exactly. I don't. I, I don't know, but I just <laughs> Nobody don't. knows, right? Yeah. You don't really know. You're just like, oh, it doesn't hit me right. Yeah. So it's so weird. But yeah, I think we're all like that to one, one degree or another. Good. We're all kooks then. Good. We're all okay. kooks. Yeah, we're no, all crazy kooks. Yeah. So the last one, certainly, you know, not in any specific order, Blackbird by the Beatles. Ah, wow. Of course, uh, it isn't about a literal bird, uh, but uh, of course it could be. He could just have been sitting there and looking at a bird and, you know, going, hey, well, you know, I mean, it could be that simple. There's certainly people write songs about animals and random things that they just happen to spot. However, uh, it has had meanings ascribed to it that I don't know what any of them are legitimate. I mean, it could be uh, a certain woman struggling um, to overcome obstacles in life, or it could be, uh, you know, a thing about black people in general. It could be anything, you know. I mean, it was the 60s, and there was, you know, legitimate civil rights issues um, and everything. And I don't know what uh, Mr. McCartney has ever said about that, if anything. But what's the popular notion in the general public? Well, I'm going to tell you, before I tell you all that, that I literally... I always thought it was about a bird. Uh, yeah, me too. I for many really years, I did. That no, I must think for it's many about years, a bird. I did too. Yeah, and I thought it was really beautiful in its simplicity. Right? I thought, oh, how beautiful, you yeah. know. And then as I got older, I thought, well, is it maybe like I know why the caged bird sings? Is it like, one no. of those? My, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. I was like, no, 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 you know. And so I just kind of stuck with the fact that it was about 
birds, which of course you know I'm obsessed with birds, and we love so birds are you. Here, yeah. So I'm like, uh, and I'd be perfectly happy to find out that's what it was about. You know, it's not. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> right. Paul McCartney told Santa Monica Radio, "It's not really about a blackbird whose wings are broken. You know, it's a bit more symbolic." A highlight from the McCartney songbook. Sir Paul penned Blackbird about American civil rights movement, mm-hmm. drawing inspiration from the racial desegregation of the Little Rock, Arkansas school system. Put succinctly by USA Today, Paul McCartney penned Blackbird about the black struggle. In a 2008 interview with Mojo, McCartney elaborated on just how enamored the Beatles were with the civil rights movement happening across the pond. I got the idea of using a Blackbird as a symbol for a black person. It wasn't necessarily Blackbird, but it works that way as much as when you call girls birds it wasn't exactly an <laughs> ditty about birds it was purely symbolic nice so you were absolutely dead on right that that's what it was about i thought it was about a bird it's not really about a bird but it's symbolic for the civil rights movement i think we both know that the beatles were very into the movement and they were very much you know a part of what was going on and they they were very aware of it and wanted to make people aware of it and that was one of those uh, songs. So you are very, very astute. Well, that only occurred to me later because somebody put that idea in my head. I listened to it at face value and I thought, here's a cute little song about, about birds. A bird. Because that was on the Beatles' uh, self-titled album, often referred to as the White Album, which we heard last time was, was released in 1968. Yes. And that was, you know, the, the height of that time. And uh, there's a lot of stuff on there that uh, is uh, socially relevant. I do like the fact that John Lennon pretty much came out and says, no, we're not down with communism. He says, if you go carry him pictures of Chairman Mao, you're not going to make it with anyone anyhow. In other words, we're not into that. We're not into destruction. We're not into revolution in that sense. If you got a plan, good. Let's hear it. And I think that was important, uh, you know, culturally at the time. But then As, we talked about Imagine. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He must have changed his mind a couple years later. <laughs> he met Yoko and it all changed. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Let's blame Yoko for something I'm going to blame her for something else. See, see, I never blamed her for the Beatles thing. Just, <laughs> a lot of people just absolutely hate her music, you know. The, the, the moderators in the Beatles Facebook groups. I hate her music. I, I know you do. The moderators in the Beatles Facebook groups are always like, okay, no Yoko hate. And it's just like, well, John loved her. If we're Beatles fans, we should respect that, of course. I respect her as a human being. I don't have to respect her music. Well, that weirdo experimental noise she used to do. But if the credits are true, if the songwriting credits are true on the comeback album, they're both a comeback album, Double Fantasy, the songs that are attributed to Yoko she actually wrote, they're good. They're good songs. Uh, and some she wrote and some he wrote. And the one she sings, and I think she does a pretty good job with them. So I sort of became a, a kind of an admirer at the time, musically speaking. Apart from that, she was just doing strange backup vocals on various tunes, and she was, you know, making a lot of, ooh, you know, experimental noise, and it was no big deal. I'm but out. I can deal with the songs that she allegedly wrote, and I don't think... I would hope he wouldn't write songs and put her name on them. That would be really a lame thing to do. But he could he because could. he loved her and he wanted her to probably to. If you think about what you would do for love, you know, like maybe he did that to protect that, her, to give her royalties, to take uh, care of her. Who knows? That's crossing the line, though. I mean, I, to me, that's a standard that you cannot. I, I totally do not believe in miscrediting songs you know it's just like well uh, if you're the creator of a song you can do whatever you want I know but it seems like artistic sacrilege to write a song and ascribe it to somebody else say he wrote it no she wrote it what the hell I I don't I don't believe in that who knows I don't believe in that we'll never know you know because some of the songs that were attributed to Ringo Starr were yeah he was involved in writing them but it was also George Harrison 
you know, the Ringo Starr songs that are in the Beatles canon and some of his early solo stuff. It was actually collaborations with George Harrison who just decided to remain uncredited, which to me seems kind of lame, but, you know, that's just me. I'm, yeah, a, I'm a purist in that way. You <laughs> are. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a Yoko fan. I don't like any of her music. I don't get it. It's bizarre. And again, you know, it's a personal preference, but it's that whole thing. And I have to just say it. You like Yoko Ono, but you don't like Tool, and you don't like... I just, you know, I don't know. I don't yes. know. I had to revisit, but anyway. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, so the Tool will continue to come up, I'm It will sure, continue yeah. to come up, for sure. Um, anyway, that brings us to the end of this particular topic. I hope you enjoyed it, David, and I certainly hope our audience enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I like being kept on my toes. (laughs) And I try very hard to keep you on your toes. So that brings us to the end. And all that is left to be done is for you to say. Let's fly this coop. This has been Birds of a Feather on Fusion Music Radio.